Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. As you turn there, I believe this is our last time together uh, as part of this series uh, in the book of Philippians. I would say um, I'm not going to finish up the whole chapter. I'm just going to be doing verses 1 through 9. I don't know if we're going to pick up on that and finish it later, but I think um, this might be the last one. I'll try to wrap as much of it up as possible. Uh, and just hopefully next time when somebody else is going through the book of Philippians again, they can just finish it up as they see fit. Uh, so Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 9 is our main um, area we're going to park in for the rest of our time together. Let's uh, go to the Lord together and read and ask for his blessing on his word. Philippians chapter 4, starting verses 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudias and I entreat Sanctiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help those women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's go to the presence of our Lord again to ask for his grace and wisdom as we go into his word and study what he has for us. Father, we are grateful once again, what a privilege it is to come into your house, to come among brethren, to sit at your feet, to learn from you. We pray that you would use our time together to be one of edification, one that would increase our faith or strengthen us in our relationship with you will grow us in grace and knowledge. We pray for your blessing upon your word. Use it to strengthen your people. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
Some of you have heard of the name, or if you've heard the name mentioned, or maybe you've heard in passing the name Frederick Nietzsche. He was a pagan, an unbelieving philosopher of German descent. And he famously criticized Christianity as a slave religion. His, his critique of Christianity stemmed from various uh, philosophical, cultural, and psychological reasons. Some of the main factors behind Nietzsche's criticism of Christianity include this. I'm just going to list two of them. One, he says Christian moral and value promotes a moral system that he saw as weak and passive. He contrasted a Christian virtue such as humility, meekness, self-sacrifice of what he considered to be the true virtues of strength, individualism, courage, self-assertion, and the pursuit of power. He thought that Christians resented life. He argued that Christianity fosters a negative attitude towards life by glorifying suffering and pain and sacrifice. He saw all of this as a denial of the world and life's pleasure in favor of an otherworldly focus on the afterlife. Now he was criticizing the Christianity of his day, which was Lutheranism. Uh, it was, at the time he lived, a very dead religion. And so he sought to challenge the foundation of the religious and moral beliefs to make way for a new understanding of human existence which he discussed in his concept of the Ubermensch or Superman, an idea of self-affirmation, creativity, and personal responsibility beyond, beyond conventional moralities. Now, many of us may have never heard the name of this man before, but his philosophy and his outlook on life is very prevalent and predominant in our modern culture. In the face of this outlook on life, we ought to be reminded by the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18, where Paul tells us, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Apostle James tells us that wars and fighting quarrels exists among us because of our own desires. We want what we cannot have, and so we fight and we harm one another. But what the scripture teaches is that the gospel, the good news of God through Jesus Christ reconciles God's people to himself. And because of this relationship we have with God, because of our being reconciled, through the blood of Christ, we are a people that have been adopted into God's family, and we are a people who live 
according to a different standard, one that is unlike the world, a standard that God has given to us through his word. Not a foreign standard, but a standard that God had initiated even before the foundations of the world. Because our relationship with God is rooted in the person of our God. Our God who is a God of peace, was a God who had to go to war with the devil because of sin. And it was his promise that he would crush the head of the serpent. And in so doing, he would bring peace, making peace by his cross. And so the scripture teaches us how to live in the midst of a world that is rattled with conflicts. How to combat the unnatural reality of anxiety and how to think properly about the world that God has given to us. And so as the Apostle Paul writes in this concluding remark to the church in Philippi, he is reminding them of who they are in Christ and how God expects them not only to live, but how to think about their relationship with the world that is lost and without Christ. And so these are words of discernment that Paul proffers and gives to the church. And that's why this is titled Discernment Amidst Conflicts and Anxiety. And so here's the main idea. Our inordinate and fallen desires lead to conflicts and anxiety. Because of our inordinate desires, we are at conflict, not only with ourselves, but with one another. But the good news of Jesus Christ provides peace and provides discernment to live not only at peace with God, but to live in peace with one another. And so we find discernment amidst conflict. We find discernment amidst, amidst anxiety, and then we find discernment to live in a world that is rattled with conflict and wars and fighting. How do we find discernment amidst conflict? How do we find discernment amid our own emotions that war and anxiety within us? How do we find discernment in a world that is at odds and at war with God? First, the apostle tells us that we can have discernment or we should be discerning amidst conflict. And the way we do this is to live in unity, a unity that honors the Lord Jesus Christ, a unity that puts Christ on his throne and see him as Lord, a unity that reaches to Christ and looks to him to provide answers to whatever conflicts we have in our lives. How do we see this? In verses 1, the Apostle Paul tells us, in his concluding remark, therefore, my beloved, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, first, he says, stand firm, thus in the Lord. And so whenever we're going through the epistles and the letters, the words that should pop out to us are the words that are the verbs. And so Paul is calling the believers here in verses 1 to stand firm. What does it mean that he wants them to stand firm, to be rooted 
as a tree, the psalmist would tell us, that is planted by streams of water. The believers were rooted because of their union and communion with the true and living God. And so Paul is calling them to reflect and to embrace that relationship and fellowship that they had in Christ. Stand firm, be resolute, be immovable, not easily swayed. For those of us who have been listening to and, and hearing from the other uh, passages that have been preached by the other pastors in the book of Philippians, we know that there are conflicts in the church. And because of these conflicts, most of the people, and maybe even some of them, are moving here and there and they're confused. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to think through how to think about the conflict that they're having with their brothers and sisters in their Christian faith. And so Paul tells them to continue to be rooted in their relationship with God, to look to their personal relationship with Christ. And then in verses 2, at the heart of this conflict are two people that Paul names, and we don't have anything else about them anywhere else in the scripture, so we can only conjecture about what's really happening. But what we know is that they had been at odds to the extent that the reputation of their church was at stake. And Paul had to call them out, even in his passage. And so all of the church would have been sitting when this letter would have been read. And no doubt these parties would have been there when Paul addressed them in a straightforward manner. He said, I entreat Yodias and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And this is a, another way of looking at it is to say that they should be of the same mind. And saying that they should agree or that they should be of the same mind does not mean that they need to have identical opinion on every matter, but rather it encourages them to adopt a Christ-centered perspective, to prioritize the things that align with the teaching and character of Jesus. And so when believers have their minds set on Christ and follow his example, it fosters harmony, love, and understanding within the community of believers. And so here are these two believers who are at odds, and Paul says, agree with one another. Adopt the mind of Christ when it comes to your circumstance. And to piggyback off of what had already been explained in Philippians chapter 2, adopting the mind of Christ means something very specific in this epistle. Because in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, taught it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took, and took upon him the form of a servant, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so what Paul is advocating for is to take on the posture of humility. And so here are two people who are at odds and what we see at the center of their conflict is pride. 
Each want to have their own way and each want to impose their, their themselves into this conflict. And neither of them want to humble themselves and take the posture of a servant and be willing to allow the other person to take advantage of the situation. And Paul says, adopt, take on the mind of Jesus Christ. Don't attempt to have your own way in this circumstance. In another place in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us how to love. And he says, love is patient, is kind, is it's not vaunting itself, it's not self-seeking. And this is what's happening among these sisters. And Paul says, adopt a Christ-centered approach. Understand that Jesus Christ is on his throne and he, through the ministry of his elders and teachers and leaders at the church, will administer justice. And so he calls these women and these believers who are well known in the church to submit themselves to the care of the elders. In verses 3 he says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. And so this is a command, this is a call to those who are mature, those who are elders, those who are leaders in the church, to come alongside those parties who are at conflict, who are at odds, and to help them resolve their conflicts. Help these women. And notice that these women are not pagans, they're not those who are not saved, they're Christians. He's because he said, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And he says, as a matter of fact, their names are in the book of life. So this is obviously a conflict between those who are Christians. And so Paul calls on the elders and the leaders of the church to come side by side with these warring parties and to bring about a resolution that is Christ-centered. A resolution that requires them to put aside their selfish pride and ambition. And for the sake of Christ, to pursue unity and peace among themselves for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, again, in another place, wrote to the Corinthian church. He says, therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So those who are involved in the work of reconciliation, the work of conflict resolution, who are coming alongside those who are at odds, Paul tells us that we should be steadfast because our labor is not in vain in the Lord. So honoring Christ in our conflict required that we seek him first and foremost as Lord, that he is master over us in how we deal with conflicts. This would mean that we go to his word and commit to following his word in how we resolve our conflicts. That we remain rooted in the word of God, regularly spending time reading and meditating on the Bible. It is through God's word that we gain knowledge of his character, his promises, his will for our lives. And it provides the foundation for a strong and spiritual relationship among us as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Secondly, the Apostle Paul addresses the issue of anxiety. How to discern 
dealing with anxiety in the church. What does the scripture tell us, those of us who are anxious? Well, in verses 4, Paul tells us that our way of looking at reality is that we are in a relationship with God that reminds us to rejoice in the Lord always. And this is a theme that Paul has been hitting throughout the book of Philippians. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. The last time I talked about joy, I pointed to the book of Hebrews. And I talked about the joy that was set before Jesus. The joy that gave him the, the grace to endure the hardships in life. The joy that was set before him was the joy of bringing many sons to glory. The joy of seeing the completion of our salvation. It wasn't a joy that was a joy that was centered in the fact that things were going fine and well or that he was happy with his lot. It was a joy that was focused in the fact that he was in God's will. And as one who was in God's will, he was going to experience suffering, but suffering would not determine whether he rejoiced or not. The hardship in his life would not determine whether he rejoiced. And, and so Paul calls these believers, who are no doubt experiencing this time of conflict, who are no doubt enduring persecution from the Roman culture around them, and he commands them, exhorts them to rejoice in the Lord. And so their rejoicing is not in their circumstance because their circumstances were bad. Their rejoicing wasn't in the fact that they were having a good time and that they were having feasts. No, their rejoicing were in the fact that they had a right relationship with the Lord. That their hope was built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That as far as they were concerned, neither life or death, nothing could separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so they could rejoice in the Lord always. And then he tells them about how to behave as they experience conflict. He said, let your moderation be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Let your moderation be known to everyone because the Lord is near. And Paul was getting at in this passage that as believers, we should be known by our gentleness, our spirit of gentleness. The spirit of gentleness, reasonableness, of graciousness in our interaction with one another. When people look at the church in Philippi, when people consider the testimony of the believers, they needed to see that they were reasonable people, they were gentle. 
that they were not people who were proud and haughty and were always looking about to cause trouble. And Paul reminds the believers here, as he reminds us, that our gentleness should be known to everyone. We should be characterized by gentleness. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is meek and lowly. And it strikes us not because we want to think of Christ as someone who is soft, or someone who people can just step on as though he was a rug. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who reigns in majesty, who will come in the end and destroy his enemies with the sword of his mouth. But here is Christ, who in his humanity, because of the purpose that he had in life, had to put on the mantle of reasonableness and gentleness. He was meek. And he calls us to the same kind of meekness, not because we are weak and because we have no spine or backbone, but, but because we believe in the true and living God who is the God that says vengeance is mine. A God who is a God who deals out justice on his own terms and who calls us to submit, to come under his wing and come under his protection to let him be the one who is the avenger. Vengeance is mine, he says. I will repay, saith the Lord. But he says, our reasonableness should be known to all men. And then there's a phrase that says, the Lord is near. <clears throat> there are two ways we can think through that phrase, that the Lord is near. One is that God is with us in the midst of trials and anxiety and conflict and He's there with us to enable us by his spirit to live through with the right attitude and the right behavior. He empowers us to live the Christian life, to bring honor and glory to his own name. But another way to think about it is the fact that he's coming to judge the quick and the dead. And he says he will judge, he will call all of us to give an account for the life that we've lived in the flesh. And so we should always be mindful in all of our dealings with one another that God is watching. God is going to be the one who would hold us accountable in the end. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, 25, Jesus tells his disciples and those who are following him, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, toil, they neither toil or spin. And I'll tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So how do we think through, and how do we have discernment about anxiety? How do we think through, how do we have discernment about the circumstances that surround us, that shake us? How do we think through and have discernment about our attitude and how we relate to one another? Scripture says, be anxious about nothing. It's a hard pill to swallow. He gets the question is, but, but don't you see, Lord, this is going on in my life. And my life is really hard. And, and all these people are doing this. And, and all of these people are saying this. And, and circumstances are such. And I'm broken. This. And, and we can have excuses that can mount up. And we can want to make these excuses enough to say we can and should be anxious. But the scripture says we shouldn't be anxious. Not even about what's going to happen tomorrow. That's why we sing... I don't know about tomorrow. There's something about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow. And I know he holds my hand. There, there are so many things about tomorrow, and tomorrow in the sense that the future. None of us know our future. We can plan and we can scheme and we can do whatever we think is necessary to make sure we're secure. And sometimes we, we need to do those things. We need to plan. Nothing, nothing's wrong with planning. But we cannot put our hope in our planning. We cannot put our trust and our joy and our peace in the fact that we've made proper plans. We can and we should. Because the circumstances of life can change at any moment. The stock market can crash. We can be at war with another country. And so many other things could happen to disturb all of our peace and all of our planning. And we should be aware of all of those things. But the reality is, amidst all of those things that could happen tomorrow, now, in the future, none of them can change who God is and the fact that he is in control of tomorrow. And he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is what should give us joy. That is what should cause us to be excited about tomorrow, facing tomorrow, because God is going to be with us. I am with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. And so, yes, trouble will come. Hardships, anxieties will crop up. But he says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. And how to deal with anxiety, he says, in everything. Verses 6. In everything, including anxiety, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. James says, we have not because we ask not. And God says, whatever you're experiencing, whatever is disturbing you, whatever is causing you to not sleep at night, in everything, by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, give it to God. Give it to the Lord in prayer. 
and let Jesus fix it for you. And he says when you're living in this manner, when you're not shaken by anxiety, when your life is characterized by one who is reasonable and gentle, when, when you're rejoicing, in verses 7, Paul tells us that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. Notice there, the operating word. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The heart is the seat of who you are. And what causes you to move and to be shaken, to be perturbed. The scripture says if you are living in conformity to the truths of the scripture, God himself will bring peace into your life to buffer you against whatever it is that is attempting to shake you and get you off kilter. And then finally, as we live with reference to the world that is always in turmoil, we don't have to go too far, all we have to do, as Knox would say, is open the newspaper, look at the television, and there you have it. It's all around us. Wars, fightings, bad news. How do we live in this world? How do we have discernment about how to think about the world and those who live around us? Paul is writing again to the Philippians. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Discernment amidst a confusing world requires cultivating Christ-like thinking. Thinking like a Christian. There's so many Christians don't think like Christians. They're easily swayed by bad news. They're always in panic because of one thing or another that is, is roaring around them. And so what is true, things that are factual, these things that are aligned with reality, whatever is noble, honorable, and dignified, whatever is pure, free from moral impurity and corruption, whatever is pleasing, whatever is beautiful and attractive in character, whether, whatever is worthy of respect and commendation, whatever is outstanding, or of high moral value, whatever is excellent, praiseworthy, deserving of praise and recognition. The scripture says these are the things that we need to be attracting to us. These are the things that we need to be thinking about. These are the things that we need to focus our mind on because these are the things that reflect the attributes, the character of who our God is. When we're in the midst of the storm, like Peter, instead of looking at the storm and being disturbed by the waves, and sinking and dying, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. By focusing on these positive attributes, believers can develop a mindset that promotes virtue, godliness, and godly living. It encourages them to look for the best in others, to be grateful and to strive for Christ-like attitudes and behaviors. This reality 
of thinking on these things also refer to a broader reality in life. It encompasses how the believers engage with the world around them, how they respond to challenges, how they interact with others in their daily life. It caused them to adopt a positive and virtuous outlook on life, to align their thoughts with God's truths and principle. Think on these things. This is a call to cultivate a particular disposition on life, of focusing and embracing virtues, positive attributes in all aspects of life. And what is the promise that comes with that command to think on these things? Paul tells us in verses 9, what you have learned, what you have received, heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so in closing, Paul and believers at Philippi, the relationship is such that he's able to write in such a way to encourage them. Remember, he's in prison. He's about to face his own death, and here he's writing about rejoicing in the Lord. But if you can imagine the believers in Philippi sitting and eagerly gathering to hear the Apostle Paul speak as this letter is read to him, to sit around Paul addresses them with warmth and affection, sharing the stories of his experiences, the experiences he faced, and the unwavering joy he finds in Christ. The believers are captivated by his words and inspired by his example. They learn from Paul's teaching. He recounts to them the essential teachings he's shared with them during his time in Philippi. He reminds them of the core tenets of the Christian faith, the gospel message, the transforming power of the grace of God. What they've received from the apostle Paul, the, the, the believers recall the personal attention Paul gave them, taking time to disciple, mentor, and nurture their faith. They remember how he cared for them as a spiritual father, guiding them through the challenges of living out their faith in a diverse and sometimes hostile environment. What they've heard and observed in the Apostle Paul, the Corinthians reflect on their times that they heard him speak, his impassioned sermons, his words resonated with their hearts. They recall observing his life, how he lived with integrity and modeled the very teachings he preached, and how he caused them to practice these things. He lovingly urges them to take action he called them to put to practice what they have learned and what they have seen. Calls them not only merely to bind, to, he doesn't only call them to, to imitate him, but he challenges them to walk in faith, to live out what he had been preaching to them, reflecting on the love of Christ. And then he promises the presence of God with them, the peace of God. Paul assures the believers that when they earnestly live out their faith and follow his teaching, they will experience the presence and peace of God in their lives. Their obedience to God will result in a deepened relationship with him, a sense of tranquility in the midst of life challenges. And so these are the words of the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul has left. This is his legacy to the Philippians. As the meeting draws to a close, the believer leaves with a renewed sense 
of purpose and determination. They are inspired to live out their faith boldly, treating one another with love and humility, united in Christ's teaching. The call to action from Paul has ignited a fire in their, in their hearts to be living testimonies of Christ's grace and love, impacting their community and the world around them. This is the intention of Paul's writing to his friends in Philippi, to ignite change. And this is the purpose of God's word to us even today. That when we are confronted with it, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will change us. And so that we can be people who know our God, who love our God, and who are willing to live to bring honor and glory to him in relationship to him and to one another. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on his word. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the privilege we have to come and sit in your presence. We're thankful for the Apostle Paul and the words that he's written to the church in Philippi that we too can learn from. We pray that you will bless the closing of our chapter on the book of Philippians, that you would use the truths that we've learned in this book to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray to this effect. Amen.